Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready willing and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. That's what the United Nations is all about. Tensions are rising as North Korea ramps up its long-range nuclear missile testing in response to new sanctions. That, of course, was Donald Trump, the President of the United States, talking to the United Nations uh, recently. Today on Noon Edition, uh, our panel will discuss North Korea and its nuclear weapons program with me. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire of WFIU and WTIU. And our guests today are David Bosco, Associate Professor in International Studies in the IU School of Global and International Studies. Rhea Chet is the the postdoctoral fellow with the Institute for Korean Studies in the IU IU School of Global and International Studies. And Mark Menton is here. He's a professor of practice in East Asian Studies and Diplomacy in the IU School of Global and International Studies. You can join us on the program at 812-855-0811, or you can call toll-free 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So we heard President Trump um, in the lead-in, and um, the Korean president has sort of met him with rhetoric. Sarah, you were uh, you were sort of following that this morning. What? Yeah, Mark can jump in here and, and help sort of explain just th- today and the statement that Kim, Kim Jong-un gave. How is that different than just from the continued rhetoric that we've been hearing, honestly, for years? Well, uh, it's quite unusual in that the leader of North Korea has uh, uh, made personal comments about the American president. Usually, North Koreans uh, uh, stand back from the uh, line of confrontation a little bit more than that, but uh, they're quite willing to meet uh, rhetorical fire with fire if they have to. And for him to go sort of live on state media and personally address the president, that that's the first time we've seen that happen. Is that... Yes. I I mean, it's not all peak, I think, on his part. Um, I think it's calculated on his part. Uh, This is actually very good for him um, because the North Koreans uh, uh, control their population uh, by uh, constantly telling them that there is a threat from the outside world. And so the president's comments at the U.N. General Assembly uh, make that very vivid. And um, and that gives uh, the North Korean leadership a chance to say, listen, this is the threat to our country. And then to make the further point, and our country is not going to be pushed around. And that I think that's why Kim Jong-un personally made those comments. Um, uh, it's very good for North Korean pro- propaganda to be able to play off uh, President Trump's uh, comments at the U.N. General Assembly. The one thing that he said, um, Trump's speech justifies their nuclear ambitions. Um, is that something that, I mean, it, it, do, do folks in North Korea believe that? Well, I think one of the questions, I mean, that's, it's, and it's very hard to get inside the mind of this yeah. regime, I think, for even for people who watch it very closely. But, um, you know, one of the questions is why are they so intent on pursuing this technology? Um, and one answer that a lot of people come up with is it's, it's their ultimate, um, you know, get out of jail free card or their ultimate re- regime survival card um, because they feel like if they have nuclear weapons, 
they can't be messed with. They can't be invaded. There can't be a regime change uh, operation. And so, you know, when we get beyond the, the rhetoric and all the kind of pyrotechnics and we get to the strategic question of why does this regime want nuclear weapons, um, I think one of the most compelling answers is they see this as the way of ensuring the survival of their regime. Mm-hmm. I think we also okay. have to remember that there is a strong, very um, severe arms race going on on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, that uh, from the 1970s, it was South Korea that was winning, uh, having an upper hand uh, in conventional weapons. And uh, the only way for North Korea to catch up, in the beginning, they tried to increase the number of, of troops and uh, move them closer to the border with uh, South Korea. But it had its limits. And uh, from the 1990s, we see this um, endeavor of North Korea to develop nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Can, can one of you explain to me that just sort of the, the um, feeling in, of the citizens in Korea, North and South? I mean, is, is there a great divide between people in the North and people in the South? Would they, would they like to be unified in some way? Or is this just not going to happen? Whether they liked, would like to be unified? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I can represent uh, the opinion of South Korean population, although it's very different by uh, the age. Um, when polls are taken, uh, most of Koreans still answer that they would like to see Korea reunified. But if the next question is when, uh, most people would answer after I die. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little like Saint Augustine. Uh, Augustine, you know, uh, uh, Lord, make me good, but uh, not yet. Uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, I think the South Koreans really do f- uh, fear uh, the cost of uh, reunification. Almost all studies have said that it would be much higher than reunification of the two Germanys, which of course also had years of uh, sort of informal contacts before they were reunified. Uh, there's been uh, very little contact between North and South and, and uh, among common people. I don't know, Ria, the only thing I can think of are very occasional family reunions, which are mm-hmm. very limited. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. true, that's true, yes. Uh, there have been more um, uh, than in the past with the end of the Cold War, but still very few. But we have to remember that also there is a generation of Koreans who have their families in North Korea, there are also quite a lot of defectors, refugees from North Korea, ending up in South Korea or in other parts of the world who would love to reunify with their families. Mm-hmm. I guess even here in the U.S., I just feel like it's people are kind of becoming desensitized to it's, oh, they're just talking again. It's just more rhetoric. Um, so I'm wondering, do the folks who are in North Korea and in South Korea who are actually seeing some of these tests, right, in Japan, mm-hmm. or do they take it seriously? Um, well, I think it's uh, more like Cold War. I call, I call it the Cold War, the Korean Cold War. Um, uh, it's um, during the global Cold War, which finished in the, ni- in the early 1990s, uh, people in the United States and the Soviet Union, they lived every day with danger, but they didn't think about it because it would not um, let them lead their normal daily lives. And I think it's pretty similar in South Korea and to a certain extent in Japan as well, because if we think uh, people in South Korea or in Japan, if they think every day about the danger of North Korea's uh, nuclear tests or um, actual uh, n- usage of nukes, of the nuclear weapons, then it's, um, it's, it would be impossible to live. So if you look at uh, TV or, uh, or f- photos of uh, South Koreans or Japanese uh, listening to news of another test, they usually just pass by. There are those huge screens uh, on the streets in Japan and in Seoul, but people just pass by. There's a, there are two ways you can look at what the North Koreans have developed. Uh, one is their intentions, and the other one is their potential. And it's a, it's an old saying among policymakers, uh, uh, government officials, uh, uh, that uh, in security matters you have to look at uh, people's uh, potential, uh, because you can't always tell their intentions. It's very hard to tell what the intentions of the North Koreans would be. But certainly, if you look at their potential, it's grown. 
they have uh, tested uh, nuclear weapons six times underground. Uh, all the blasts have been more powerful. Uh, they now claim to be on the uh, verge of making a hydrogen bomb. They actually claim that they, uh, they, uh, their last explosion was a hydrogen explosion. That's, that's doubted. But uh, at any rate, the, the yield has been stronger and stronger. And accompanying this has been a 30-year development of missiles, uh, which have uh, become more sophisticated, have a longer range. Uh, now they have missiles they can launch uh, from mobile platforms. Uh, they launched one from a submarine. Um, and uh, so the... Uh, and they're using, uh, 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 instead of liquid fuel on some of their longer-range missiles, they're now using uh, hard fuel, you know, which is uh, uh, much easier to handle. Uh, and, and if you move missiles around, it's much, uh, it makes it much more, uh, it ma makes it easier to uh, work with a missile. Um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to wed uh, the uh, explosive capability of a nuclear warhead, uh, put it on a missile, so they, then they have a complete uh, delivery system. Most experts agree that, that they are making progress. So that potential is changing, and it is um, objectively uh, a threat uh, to uh, Japan, uh, their other neighbors, and to U.S. territory. So, you know, policymakers in Japan and the United States have no choice but to take that growing potential seriously. And I feel like one key question here, and it's really behind a lot of things, is can the United States and Japan and, and South Korea, but I think it's now really coming to a head for U.S. policymakers, can they live with the threat of a North Korea that can reach the U.S. mainland with nuclear weapons? Um, you know, there is a, a point of view out there that, yes, we can live with that and, and that we simply deter that as we have deterred, you know, Chinese and Russian and, you know, there are other countries that have um, interballistic nuclear technology. Um, and so I think you're, you're st we're really coming to a head on that question, though. Um, and there is, there is, I think, a divide within the U.S. intelligence and defense communities as to whether this is a threat we can live with or not. The argument against living with it or that we can't live with it is that this is a different kind of regime. Uh, it's not China. It's not Russia. That We may not like those regimes, but we have some level of confidence that they're not going to launch uh, a nuclear attack on us. And uh, many people feel like you don't have that level of confidence with, with North Korea. Um, but I think when it comes down to it, if you can't live with it, if you can't live with the threat, you then have to come up with the question of, answer the question of, what do you do about it? And all of the military options look just horrific. Um, and so I think probably the bulk of, of the, the kind of majority opinion still in the U.S. defense and intelligence community is that deterrence is probably still the answer. Well, what are we actively doing to prevent it besides you know, all of the all of the rhetoric and us, all of the threats all the time. Well, so there's been this very long process of sanctions at the UN that goes back now almost a decade. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're down to it. And Mark, you know, knows this better than anyone having worked on it. But we're in a we're what's now a very kind of routinized cycle where the North Koreans, the regime will make some kind of provocation, a missile launch, a nuclear test. And then you'll have the UN Security Council convene and they'll come up with sanctions that are, you know, two degrees tighter than the last sanctions. Um, but ultimately, I think it is fair to say these sanctions are not having the impact. They're, they're not changing North Korea's fundamental strategic calculus. I, I think you have to uh, go at the problem uh, in, a, in a multifaceted way, and uh, sanctions uh, have a role to play. Um, the greatest value of sanctions uh, may be uh, the uh, growing consensus uh, in the international community, which now really includes the Chinese uh, traditional supporters of uh, the North Korean regime, uh, that this behavior is a danger even to China because it could destabilize the entire uh, region and because it could bring the United States into uh, East Asia and, you know, China's bailiwick with a much more uh, rigorous military posture to counter what the North Koreans are doing. So uh, sanctions and work in the international community and the work that the president and the administration did at the UN this week, I mean, put the rhetoric aside, was useful. That's part of it. Another part of the piece is uh, military countermeasures. And uh, we are working on uh, uh, missile defense systems. Uh, we are trying to install one, have partially installed one in South Korea. 
Uh, we, uh, the Japanese are ramping up their capabilities, and we're working also on our anti-missile capabilities. But the third piece of this, and uh, you know, the missing piece right now, is uh, direct contact with the North Koreans. Because there definitely is space. I agree with, uh, uh, well, I, there, I think David made two points that are important. One is uh, um, that there's room for deterrence. There's room uh, for uh, uh, more maneuvering before you get to, uh, we will destroy your country. Uh, there's room for uh, uh, more international cooperation and pressure on the North Koreans, uh, room for uh, more military countermeasures that they will take note of and room for direct contact with them. Somewhere there, uh, the second point uh, David made that I, I fully endorse is their program is about regime preservation. And so uh, between their capabilities and their primary desire for re regime uh, recognition and preservation, uh, there's, uh, there's space uh, for negotiating with them. But as David also suggested, this at this point will almost surely mean some kind of acceptance of the fact that they do have nuclear weapons. I don't think they will give up these weapons, uh, but uh, as they have done before over the 30, last 30 years in negotiations with uh, both Democratic and Republican administrations, uh, they uh, are capable of putting their programs on the shelf or suspending them or freezing them or slowing them down. And that's the sweet spot that uh, diplomacy should work for uh, while, you know, also taking military countermeasures and trying to rally the international community against what they're doing. Let me give our phone numbers again. If you want to join us on the program, we're talking about the issues with uh, North Korea. Um, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can find us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So David Bosco, David is an expert in international organizations, international law, and specifically researches the UN Security Council and International Criminal Court. I want to ask you about about President Trump's um, speech at the UN. I mean, was that the kind of speech? When, when was the last time we saw a leader get up and make a speech and vow to destroy another country? Yeah, I don't think, I mean, we may have, there's been plenty of uh, crazy rhetoric at the UN over the years, but generally it's not emanated from US presidents. And um, so, you know, I don't think there's anything productive about saying that um, we might destroy an entire country. I mean, certainly Trump in his in his way is, in a sense, he's kind of reflecting traditional U.S. policy, which is all military options are on the table, and if North Korea crosses a certain line, the regime will be destroyed. That's longstanding U.S. policy, um, and various presidents have said it. But pr Trump, in his way, is saying it in a much more bellicose uh, way than others. And it, it also, I think, it, Mark pointed out that it was probably helpful to the North Korean regime in terms of their relations with their population and, and heightening the sense that they're under threat. But it also was, I think, a, a really problematic thing for a U.S. president to say, given that he said destroy the whole country uh, rather than kind of destroy the regime. Um, and destroying the whole country means, you know, millions of civilian deaths, presumably. And, and that is not something that a, a U.S. president should be talking about. Um, but it does you know, it does underline the reality, uh, and I think Secretary of Defense Mattis pointed this out recently, that any assessment of what a military conflict would look like there is just horrific. And it's horrific for North Koreans, it's horrific for South Koreans, um, and potentially for the U.S., given that the U.S. has a large number of troops there. Um, there just doesn't seem to be any way that you have a kind of limited strike that you know, decapitates the regime or gets rid of the nuclear program without enveloping the entire peninsula in, in a conflagration. Yeah, so, you, can't, you can't destroy North Korea without destroying South Korea. Yeah. You, you have to talk, if you're realistic, about destroying Korea, if you bring that kind of firepower to bear on the peninsula again. You know, the, the whole Korean peninsula is about the size of the state of Pennsylvania, and it has about 75 million people uh, jammed into that space. Wow. Yeah, I wanted to ask Rhea to comment on that, because Rhea's research deals with inter-Korean relations and nation building. Rhea, what about that? <laughs> yeah, uh, you mentioned, uh, let me back up a little uh, sure. bit. Um, 
David mentioned that there is uh, what makes those, uh, things different is the fact that we have a different regime now in North Korea, not unlike previous regimes. Uh, you have a different regime here as well, mm. not unlike previous American regimes. Mm. Uh, and uh, um, Mark mentioned about uh, room for maneuvering before we destroy uh, the country thing becomes real. It's, uh, there is room, but it's not being used at all by the current administration. Um, in the UN speech, I think the problematic part was how it, uh, the message to North Korea uh, played uh, along the message to Iran. Mm -hmm. So it was sad that um, to North Korea enter the agreement or we will destroy you, but it was so close to the message to Iran that uh, you know you can enter agreement and we will still destroy you. Mm -hmm. So um, the the way that policy making is done uh, towards North Korea by the United States now is also problematic. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to really um, resolve the problem. Mm -hmm. um, also, I think I have a question to Mark. Okay, sure. Uh, you mentioned about sanctions, and I see that uh, it, fe it feels like you are quite positive about their effect. Can you think about um, positive examples of sanctions where they worked in the past towards any regimes of um, comparable to North Korea? Well, I think the sanctions on Iran uh, moved uh, Iran toward the uh, agreement, which I, we may be ready to repudiate now, but at any rate, um, uh, I think uh, they were helpful in that case. Um, I think uh, certain kinds of limited sanctions activities, for instance, carried out by the United States have, during the 30 years of negotiations with uh, North Korea, uh, been helpful tactically mm -hmm. in moving them uh, back to the negotiating table uh, when we have had difficulties. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, there, uh, there was something called the Banco Delta Asia uh, situation uh, during uh, the uh, Bush administration where we went, uh, the United States Treasury went after bank accounts of uh, North Korean leaders. Uh, they were quite upset about that, and uh, in our meetings with them, uh, they kept on insisting that those sanctions had to be taken off or they wouldn't talk about anything. Um, but the, the other half of that message was uh, we'd really like to continue talking. So those sanctions were eventually uh, reduced uh, and um, uh, they came back in a, uh, you know, very much a dealing mode. Uh, you know, they're not, uh, they're not just adamant and never uh, wanting to engage, uh, but they're single-minded. They engage for a concrete benefit for the regime that is related to uh, either regime survival uh, or uh, to getting benefits, financial, economic benefits for their country. And uh, that, they're, they're focused like lasers on that. So if they think that's in prospect, uh, they will, uh, they will uh, deal and sometimes flexibly. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a short break. And, and when we come back, we have uh, a phone call that we're going to go to immediately when, when we come back after I reintroduce our panel. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. Today we're talking about uh, issues involving the U.S. and North Korea. 
And we have three guests in the studio. David Bosco is Associate Professor in International Studies in the IU School of Global and International Studies. And David is an expert on international organizations and international law um, and specifically researches the UN Security Council on International Criminal Law. We have Ria Che, who's a postdoctoral fellow with the Institute for Korean Studies, the IU School of Global and International Studies. And her research deals uh, with inter-Korean relations and nation building on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, as well as diplomatic histories of North and South Korea and international relations and the Cold War in East Asia. And Mark Menton is here. He is professor of practice in East Asian Studies and Diplomacy at, at IU in the School of Global and International Studies. And Mark also, he was the, is the former U.S. ambassador to Mongolia and was heavily involved in relations with North Korea as deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Seoul. He also was previously a State Department's country director for Korea and deputy country director for Japan, and he worked in the administrations or under three different uh, presidents, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton in between those two. So if you have questions or comments, 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And we're going to go right to the phones. Owen's been patient. Owen, go ahead. I have, I have two questions. Uh, one is fairly simple. Uh, how many of your panelists have been to North Vietnam? And the second question is, most South Koreans uh, don't appear to be much concerned about the um, increase in the apparent crisis situation. Um, should we learn something from that? Oh, and I think you meant North Korea, right, instead of North Vietnam? Right. Yeah, okay. Gotcha. Okay. Who wants to go first? Uh, I, I've been I've been to uh, North Korea uh, for my work. It's Mark uh, Mark Minton. Uh, and uh, I actually have been to North Vietnam too, or Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> Not for work, for mm -hmm. vacation. Have, I, have either of you been? As a South Korean citizen, it's very difficult to go. Oh, so okay. I haven't been to. You've not been. And I have day. not been myself, no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, what Americans can learn from it? Um, I don't know. South Koreans have been living with this danger for how many years now? They're since the Korean War. So perhaps it's possible to, to, to learn to live on a slope of a volcano. Um, I don't think it's, yeah, Americans will have to learn that too, but it's kind of relearning because mm -hmm. you did it before. Mm -hmm. And oh. there, as, as mentioned earlier in this program, there are other threats uh, to the United States and Americans are already living with them. Mm -hmm. Owen, follow up? No, that's fine, thanks. Okay. All right, 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. can also email us questions for the show, news at indianapublicmedia.org. David and Mark, you both have mentioned how military action is very, very difficult against North Korea. Is there any way to do any sort of targeted response that wouldn't be so catastrophic? Maybe you can talk about like why, you know, just more why it would be so catastrophic. Well, I think and Mark may be best positioned to talk about this, but um, I mean, my understanding is that, I mean, you have so much art, leaving aside the, the nuclear weapons themselves that, that, that North Korea clear, clearly has, you have so many artillery tubes and other, uh, you know, weapons directed at South Korea, uh, with Seoul being quite close to the border, um, that initiation of hostilities is very likely to lead to a massive shelling uh, with thousands or perhaps millions of casualties um, in South Korea in a short amount of time. So if we attack North Korea, they would immediately tax, attack South Korea. I think that's everyone's supposition, and I think it's probably a good one. Um, and so I think that basic reality is what has led so many people to conclude that there isn't a good military option. I mean, other proliferation situations, I think we should point out, have had better military solutions. Mm. Um, we shouldn't forget that you know Israel, on its own, 
knocked out Iraq's nuclear program in the 1980s. They knocked out uh, an, a, a very early Syrian program. Um, so there are situations where targeted military action can be helpful in stopping early nuclear programs. It's just that North Korea, because of how advanced the program has gotten and the conventional forces situation, is, does, is not one of those situations. The, every, every president uh, that uh, I served under um, or in whose administration I was, uh, uh, has considered a military strike against uh, North Korea. Bill Clinton almost did it in 1994 uh, when we had a confrontation. I was in the embassy in Seoul, and we almost were evacuated, and the, North, the South Koreans were panicking, you know, uh, stripping the shelves of food and everything because the North Koreans said they were going to, you know, incinerate Seoul. Um, over this incident, uh, the confrontation at that time. Uh, but uh, Clinton stepped back when he uh, realized uh, what the consequences would be along the lines that David was mentioning. And of course, the George W. Bush administration uh, early on, uh, and especially people like uh, Vice President Cheney, really uh, considered the possibility of either a surgical strike of some kind to take out North Korean nuclear facilities. But again, um, the, you know, the, the Koreans have this expression, uh, uh, you kill me, I call, kill you. Uh, uh, I know about this because the North Koreans have cited it to me. Uh, and they said, do not think uh, that if the balloon goes up, basically, uh, that uh, we are going to be the only ones that will be hurt. Um, they do watch, uh, and as far as holding onto their nuclear weapons, uh, they saw what happened to Gaddafi who made a deal to get rid of his nuclear weapons program and then uh, was uh, deposed and ended up shot in a ditch. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the United States and the West turned against him. Um, and they uh, saw what happened to Saddam Hussein. And they make the point to American diplomats all the time, do not for a minute think uh, that we will go uh, softly into that good night. You know, we will fight back. and. Um, and uh, the first way they would fight back any strike of any kind would be with those conventional weapons they have lined up along the DMZ. And there's no question before we could take them out of their hardened um, silos and, and mountainsides and everything, they would do great damage to Seoul. Uh, there are any given time maybe about 200,000 Americans who are in South Korea. Uh, you know, uh, about 30,000 of them are military personnel. Uh, there for long, uh, you know, long term, uh, three years, two years. Um, their families, uh, businessmen, and students. Uh, so there would be a lot of damage, and the North Koreans wouldn't be the only ones that would go down. Not to mention, Seoul is a city of what, 20 million, 20 15 million, 15 million people. Yeah, huge. Yeah, we have a phone call. Uh, Dennis from Bloomington is on the line. Dennis. Okay, let's say that this crisis brings back an unlikely political miracle. And North and South Korea are unified. What are the implications for the future of a unified Korea with the military might of the North and the economic clout of the South? All right. Rhea? Um, it would be great. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> but um, I think um, it could be a good step towards <coughs> denuclearization of Northeast Asia. Now it's going in the opposite direction. Um, with South Korea and Japan not having nuclear weapons. Um, but, um, yeah, North Korea's development uh, of nuclear weapons make it uh, more practical for South Korea and Japan to develop as well. So reunified Korea would probably not need nuclear weapons. And uh, that could uh, set precedent for uh, continuous denuclearization of the region. I think there's one point here when we talk about unification that's important, which is China. Um, and depending on how, I think China, China, you know, Mark said that China has been on board with many of these sanctions, and that's true. But I think Chinese interests here are quite distinct from U.S. interests, um, which is that certainly I don't think China's wild about, you know, the pyrotechnics and the, the kind of reckless behavior of the North Korean regime. But China's interests, I think, are very clearly served by the continuation of the North Korean regime, the survival of that regime. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the U.S., uh, I think, would be perfectly happy to see that regime collapse. And that's a really critical difference because it means that when it comes to these sanctions, 
China is not going to want to do something such as totally cutting off crude oil, for example, which is something that's been discussed in UN deliberations, that really might lead to the collapse of the regime. Um, because from China's perspective, that has many disadvantages. Number one, you get a flow of refugees and, and you get you know, instability along the border. Even if you do get a, a, a somehow peaceful unification, that probably means you have a U.S. ally on China's border now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not something that China wants. And so there's really a, a, a sharp difference um, that gets papered over in these UN resolutions. But there's a sharp difference in, in interests here between China and the United States. And, and China simply does not want to see that regime collapse. I, I think there's an important point here I'd like to amplify, which is um, – uh, you know, American administrations have made a mistake. Uh, uh, you know, all kind of Democratic uh, administrations and Republican administrations are saying, well, and the Trump administration is uh, given shown tendencies of this to let China se- settle it or China can settle it. The North Koreans and the Chinese hate each other. Uh, and uh, uh, China uh, also does not have uh, that kind of influence over the North Koreans. Uh, 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 the uh, the North Korean leader Kim Jong Un uh, executed his own uncle, and one of the reasons he did is because he was too close to China. Hmm. Uh, so uh, China cannot solve uh, the uh, the Korean uh, uh, North Korean issue for us. Uh, it will have to be done through, uh, and I also think sanctions alone cannot do it. And I don't think the Chinese would go so far as to uh, see North Korea collapse. I agree with all that. Uh, so, therefore, China cannot solve this for us. Unfortunately, uh, we have to do this ourselves. The North Koreans are intently focused on the United States. Uh, that's the big enemy. Uh, that's the one that they can reach some sort of uh, uh, modus vivendi with to preserve the regime. Uh, that's the one that can, uh, that's the country, our country, that can open up the international financial system to them. Uh, this is the kind of uh, steps they want to see, and they want to see a reduction of our military presence on the Korean Peninsula. Now, I'm not saying any of those things can or should happen, but that's what the North Koreans want. What is the history there? Why is it that we are their sort of enemy number one? We fought in the Korean War uh, against them. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's that's uh, uh, Their point of view is that was a civil war, and they were about to reunify the country, uh, you know, and, and, and build a strong, unified, independent Korea, and this U.S. Uh, intervention, from their standpoint, was just another example of a foreign country interfering in the affairs of the Korean people and keeping them separated and keeping them down. That's the North Korean view of things. So what is our end goal in all of this? Is it to get rid of the regime? Is, is that what we want? Well, I think... I, I, I think certainly getting rid of the regime is something that the U.S. would see as, as very beneficial. And, and, and not just on strategic grounds. I think it's, we haven't really talked about the humanitarian and human rights side of things. But North Korea is a horrific state. Um, it's a horrific state for its people. And, um, you know, there has been talk about uh, whether North Korean, the North Korean leadership could be prosecuted, say, by the International Criminal Court. Um, that is not possible because of the jurisdictional limits that the court has, but that is something that's been in the public discourse. Um, And so there are multiple reasons why regime change there might be, depending on how it happens, a a beneficial thing from from a strategic perspective of the U.S., but also from a human rights perspective. But I I think the more limited goal of U.S. policy has been getting them to stop their nuclear program. I think that's, uh, and certainly preventing, as Mark mentioned, the kind of, you know, we've had these two pieces of it, the missile piece and the nuclear weapon side. And we've now gotten perilously close to miniaturization of nuclear warheads that can go on top of these missiles. And, and I think avoiding that has been the central uh, U.S. goal. That's, that's true. And, uh, you know, the heart of our dilemma and our difficulty with North Korea is uh, uh, they're focused, as I said, like a laser on regime uh, uh, preservation. That's really the only thing they care about. Uh, They've seen uh, hundreds of thousands of their people die, maybe a million of their people die or more from famine. 
um, and the government did almost nothing about it. Um, they have locked up in political prison camps maybe 200,000 of their own people. They're tightly controlled. It's, it's you know, George Orwell's 1984 squared or cubed in North Korea. The only thing the regime cares about is preserving the regime. And this is the dilemma for us, uh, to get at their nuclear programs, uh, to get to modify their behavior and make them less of a threat to ourselves and uh, their, our, our allies, uh, the Japanese, the South Koreans, and others in Asia, uh, we would have to in some way move to give them what they want, recognition, respect, and now accepting them as a nuclear weapon state. But this is very hard. I want to see the American politician that will go into a presidential campaign or any kind of campaign and say that that is his or her position. Uh, because as David uh, pointed out, this is a horrible regime, uh, a major human rights violator, uh, plus a, a, saddle, a saber rattling uh, uh, nuclear power that threatens to incinerate its neighbors. Um, and uh, so that's our dilemma. They want what uh, three or four American presidents have been unable to give them. When we were first negotiating with them in the Clinton administration, uh, we gave them financial aid and we talked about eliminating their nuclear program and normalizing relations. And I remember distinctly uh, the U.S. negotiators coming to Seoul and saying, well, we can promise these things because, you know, this regime is on its last legs. It's going to collapse. And, you know, the payoff day will never come. Well, that regime is focused so much on survival that, guess what, they survived for 30 years and they're still here. So uh, our initial bet didn't work out. So this is the dilemma we're in. It's a very, very difficult and dangerous foreign policy issue. Let me give our numbers uh, one last time for today's program, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can email us news at indianapublicmedia.org. So we talk about regime change and regime preservation, and I guess for for any of you, but can you cite a a place in the last couple of decades, maybe the last two or three presidents, in which regime change that was sort of pushed by the United States has actually worked out well? Well, I mean, in Afghanistan, um, you have, you know, the, the Taliban essentially was the Afghan mm-hmm. regime, um, and that was a regime that was hosting al-Qaeda. And uh, so I think it's certainly better that Afghanistan not be um, that kind of regime anymore. Now, that doesn't I mean that the military struggle there has obviously been ongoing, has been difficult. But I think there are very few people who would say, well, it would have been better if we were back to the Taliban that's, you know, hosting al-Qaeda and other um, extremists. So um, you, you have – one of the things you have with these – I mean, for example, Gaddafi. Gaddafi had – or Saddam Hussein, they had held together their societies through terror and through patronage and other uh, mechanisms. And these are horrible regimes. When they fall, you get tons of instability. Um, but – one of the dilemmas is that it's 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 often very hard to say. Was it? Would you want to go back? Would you want to go back to Saddam Hussein? Would you want to go back to Gaddafi? Um, there are certainly real costs to regime change, um, but um, but there are there are some some benefits as well. So it's a very hard calculation. Mm-hmm. Is this regime is it stable? Would you say? Very stable. All right. Quick answer to that one. We have a phone call from Tom. Tom has a question. Hi. Hey. Yeah, I um, I had a couple of comments and a question. Um, you know, we we're probably the most powerful country in the world economically and militarily, and we have been for for quite some time. And our presence is all over the place. Um, and it seems to me that it makes sense. If I, you know, if I'm a little country that's been um, kind of bullied around, like in the Korean War, it, it might, it, I don't see why that couldn't be considered a civil war. It was North versus South, and we stepped in and, and invaded the North, um, and then, you know, there was a truce. So, and then it, when North Korea's leaders, no matter how crazy they are, um, look at our history with, 
other region, other countries that we haven't agreed with, we've pretty much invaded them um, or caused some sort of war to happen, and it's still going on. So why should they trust our intentions, and why should they not try to develop a nuclear weapon? Um, and who are we to say that that you know we have a nuclear weapon? Why? Who are we to say that other countries shouldn't have them? I mean, it's easy to say. You know, I don't want you to have a gun when I've got one. And, and, you know, just because I think you're crazy and you're not going to agree with me, you know, a lot of people could say that about our country. So, um, right. we'll, yeah. ask, we'll ask for Mark to mm-hmm. respond I, I, was, first. I was really hoping you would give that one to David. <laughs> I, 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 will, I will be happy to uh, defer, uh, you know. Well, no, I mean, I think it's a really serious question. It's a very powerful question, and it gets to... Um, number one, kind of how U.S. foreign policy is viewed by the rest of the world, um, which is often seen as kind of belligerent and, and reckless in some respects in its own right. Um, and, uh, and then it gets to this question about the double standard and the idea that, well, some countries should be allowed to have nuclear weapons and some countries shouldn't. And uh, what the caller is identifying there is a real point of tension. Um, now, the way in legal terms and, and in treaty terms that's been dealt with is through the non-proliferation regime. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's basically a grand bargain between the nuclear weapon states and the non-nuclear weapon states, uh, which says, okay, we, the nuclear weapon states, get to keep our weapons. Everyone else is encouraged to sign a treaty that says we're not going to develop them, and most of the world has. North Korea did and then backed out. Um, but there is a a quid pro quo there, and the quid pro quo is that the nuclear weapon states are obliged to negotiate to try to get rid of their weapons. And I think what many countries around the world who don't have nuclear weapons say is, well, we did our part of the bargain. We agreed not to develop nuclear weapons, and most countries have not. It's important to recognize that. I mean, there were people back in 1945-46, as nuclear weapons started to emerge, who expected that most of the world would have them soon, or at least dozens of states would have them. And here we are uh, in 2017, and only nine states do. So overall, the the nuclear genie has been kind of kept in the bottle. Um, But it is in part on the basis of this quid pro quo. And I think, uh, you know, non-nuclear weapon states are on some solid ground in saying, hey, nuclear weapon states, you need to be more serious about your obligation to negotiate away or or at least vastly reduce. There have been big reductions, but vastly reduce uh, arsenals. But could I say something about the uh, caller's, um, uh, you know, point about uh, who are we? You know, we have nuclear weapons. They have, uh, uh, they want nuclear weapons. Uh, How can you uh, make any kind of judgment between the United States and North Korea? Well, the way you can do that is because um, uh, international affairs is more than just transactions between nation states and making their governments uh, uh, comfortable uh, with having all of the tools and toys of power, including military power. It's also, and traditionally in American foreign policy, it's about values and the quality of life and how people live and about regional stability. Uh, North Korea is the enemy of all those values. Uh, There are no human rights in North Korea. People are imprisoned. Whole families are imprisoned. They're starved to death. Um, uh, And uh, we can't lose sight of the great project of North Korea, unobtainable now, but still in their minds, is reunification of the Korean Peninsula. We have an ally a formal treaty ally, a security ally. Uh, We have U.S. troops in South Korea. Uh, We have an ally in South Korea. And South Korea is uh, the 11th largest economy in the world uh, and a uh, a uh, market-based democracy. Uh, Those are values worth defending. So when we look at North Korea, we don't look at them as just another country and therefore equal to South Korea and Japan and the United States. And the difference is values and what uh, the United States and South Korea and Japan, for instance, stand for, the quality of life uh, for their people and uh, the, the, um, uh, the way they relate to uh, other uh, countries around the world. Uh, the North Koreans do not share any of those values, and, and so that's why we do not approach them as just another country. Thank you a lot, Tom. And we're going to move on to James, who's on the phone. James? Hello, is, am I there? Yes, you are. Hello. Uh, 
the last speaker uh, assumes, uh, uh, stated quite clearly, that North Korea has no values. And therefore, uh, they're, they're demons, they're subhumans. Uh, uh, they, they can't think like us. Uh, they're, they're not motivated by uh, uh, 65 years of uh, sensing their peril uh, uh, by a country uh, that uh, practically leveled them, by a country that has interfered with all efforts at reunification. And the other assumption of the whole discussion, I may say so, is that nuclear weapons are morally acceptable. How is it that this is possible? How is it possible that we say killing is of innocent people is a, is a basic tool of our foreign policy arsenal, that there is no issue at stake? We're going to normalize this, re this discussion. We're going to take it for granted that it's okay to not only kill millions of innocent people, but to devastate the environment for thousands of years to come. What kind of conversation is this? And we, we neglect that we have, let's say, two madmen at the helm. Two, two people whose um, psychological uh, stability is, can be easily questioned. What kind of conversation is this? I don't get it. There is a fundamental problem to begin with of, namely, nuclear weapons as somehow normal procedure. That's madness in itself. I'll be quiet now. Thanks, James. We but appreciate think, your call. I think the conversation is grappling with that. I mean, yeah. it, it, because we're talking about what do we do to mm -hmm. try to prevent this regime from getting nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. That's the whole basis of the conversation. So um, now... I mean, the caller may be correct in pointing out that it is kind of an unspoken assumption here that that it's okay for, again, we get back to this point about whether it's okay for some regimes to have them and some regimes not. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree that that's a, that's a very important issue. Mm -hmm. But Mark's, Mark's response here is quite important on that, that there are big differences between regimes. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't, we don't live in fear of the French having nuclear weapons. We don't live in fear of the British having them. Um, we don't really live in fear of India or Pakistan having them, although there are certainly some, some real concerns there. Um, many people think we can't live with North Korea. I tend to think we can live with it. Um, and that, you know, talking about unspoken assumptions, one, one assumption that's often made about the North Korean regime is that they are irrational. And I think uh, statements like the one that was referenced earlier today coming out from Kim Jong-un um, tend to reinforce that. But there is a strong argument here that, that from a regime survival standpoint, they are acting rationally. Um, and, and therefore, it may very well be that we can accept a regime that has these weapons. We should not forget that when China got nuclear weapons, back in the mid-1960s, that was a regime that was on the cusp of going through the Cultural Revolution, which was an insane period domestically, but also in <coughs> terms of their foreign policy. Um, and they got nuclear weapons right at that point. So there is a long history of learning how to deal with uh, countries that have nuclear weapons. We're going to have to call it uh, a day. I do want to say I, I, I know that uh, Mark didn't call anybody subhumans. No, I don't even think they're irrational. I don't even think the regime is right. irrational in our terms. All right. We, we are out of time. I want to thank David Bosco, uh, Ria Che, and Mark Menton, as well as our producer, Angelo Batista, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. <laughs>